Hello, this is Matt Hale bringing you the Art Monthly Talk Show again. And the Art Monthly Talk Show is based on the Art Monthly magazine and writing within it. And it's presented this time by me, Matt Hale, as I said, but it's also presented by Mark William Lewis, Alexandra Hull and Chris McCormack. And we do kind of alternately throughout the year. I started doing it many years ago and did every one, but in the end that seemed rather selfish. So better people have come on and do it too. So I hope you enjoy their tones and other programmes. The last one was by Mark William Lewis. This one is recording on the 1st of April, which I hope is not an ominous thing. My guest today is Bob Dickinson. Bob, are you superstitious? Sometimes. <laughs> well, it's <laughs> April Fool's Day and it's before... Midday, so maybe this programme is just a joke. Anyway. Um, I hope not. <laughs> Bob, I would describe you as a writer, um, but you also do do production and broadcasting yourself of programmes other than on the Art Monthly Talk Show. Is that, That's right, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I used to. I don't do it that much nowadays. Okay. I, I, uh, yeah, but I used to work for the BBC Radio. Yes, I listened to one that was repeated... Um, recently called Really Happening, which was a great programme you did about happenings, which began, I think, although you're, you did a kind of history, which I thought was really great, because you started with Alan Caprow's happenings, which I think were in the 70s, but then you also did some... 60s. Uh, 60s well. and 70s, yeah. yeah, 60s. I always get a bit muddled. I'm a big fan of the 70s, so I always think everything yeah. was from the 70s, but... Yeah, but anyway, but that was a really good programme because it did go right up to now and stuff happening in the Liverpool Biennale and and, and Pete, I thought there was some influence by Caprow. What was it you did with oil drums? Well, I I went to Liverpool and Tanya Bruchera, the Cuban artist Tanya Bruchera, was was um, reenacting a Caprow uh, happening involving moving. Um, oil drums and she was doing this because of the of the presence of the oil industry in Merseyside um, and we what we did was we had to move these oil drums to the venue in which the festival was being launched and obviously when you move oil drums that are empty you can't these were empty oil drums, right? Uh, it makes a lot of noise. And nobody at the opening ceremony had been previously warned that we were going to do this, apart from um, the, the, the absolute people who were ultimately in charge of the biennales or the biennial. So at, one, at some point when the speeches were being made, <clears throat> We opened the doors and we started moving these oil drums into the, the building. And of course, people were outraged. <clears throat> so it was like a sort of um, a reenactment of a happening from the 1960s or 70s that was re, re, re also repoliticizing uh, in the very local sense. Uh, the the, the 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 way that happening could could be made to work and uh, it, and I recorded the whole thing. It was quite difficult moving a moving oil drums and uh, ho holding a recording machine at the same time. But 
can't quite remember how I did it, but it was all it was all jolly good fun. I hope you're okay. You got a, I know you're getting over a slight cough, and uh, <coughs> yeah, <clears throat> listeners, bear with us. Yeah. I've also got a slight one as well, so you never know. It might just be a cough program. Listen, I, I think that's really important. Can you remember when Caprow used? Or I'm not going to talk about another thing when your your feature, but this is the kind of leading one I'm trying to do in a way because it interests me because I like Caprow. But the I think he's important. Um, he really broke the way artists made work, really, in a way. But but he used oil drums originally. Do you think that was a political use then? <clears throat> I suppose yes, it was. I I I, I think. Everything he did was 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 political in a way because he was he was saying uh, he was saying that you know the point of of uh, art is to work is to bring is to is to change ordinary life is to transform life and to get people involved in doing that by uh, making things happen. <laughs> It, outside galleries, first of all, not in a gallery, not in a museum, but just anywhere, anywhere potentially could be a place where you make art and art by changing the environment that you that you're used to or that you or that you come across in daily life by changing it and saying this is art. It changes art and it changes life and it changes you. Well, well put. Uh, now, let's hold on to that that um, understanding, because I think it's quite interesting in relation to. You know, if I have, I don't have problems with the artists you've written about or or your piece at all. But I'm just, I'm quite interested in in really whether the work that you talk about in this feature in in the April issue of Art Monthly, um, it's issue four five five, by the way, re, uh, listeners, um, whether they actually have an effect on life, like do and and do they want to, and is there art that they do? Because it's described um, in a particular way, and I'll, I'll I'll do that now. Your your feature is called the art of denial. Bye bye yeah. us. I'm not quite sure whether that whether you call it that, but that's the, the the intro says artists engage with legacies of trauma, and this is where the the effect part comes in to counteract decades of denial and untruth, historical revisionism, distortion, and political suppression. Now that's quite a task that lot yeah and and, and, I, and I i don't know whether whether they would all claim that's what their work is trying to do but it, it, it is obviously the artists have ambitions to for their work and they are trying to counteract major things that go on in life as you describe at the beginning now i should let you say say more um really but um in your piece, you, you cite many artists working in installations, videos, exhibitions, from performance, video, games of a tag in a gas chamber, to public speeches by real journalists and shamanistic dances, including body printing. That's just a snapshot yeah. of, of a yeah. Now, you, you begin by referring to a very current situation which we're all very aware of, which is the uh, war in Ukraine. Um, yes. Why don't you Why don't you say, uh, if you'd like to, a little bit about that that uh, as it's your entry paragraph, pretty much. I mean, I can refer, I can quote it for you if you need. But do you have your? Well, uh, uh, I, I I 
wanted to talk about Ukraine to start with because it's happening now and there's we are there is so much commentary going on in the news and between us uh, about what to believe and about and disinformation and propaganda so i i wanted to to, to write something for art monthly that looked at uh, in in art terms at disinformation in history in historic terms which is where i start with ukraine and soviet union the history of the soviet union and ukraine is a place that's been invaded and uh, occupied by the Soviet Union and by Nazi Germany in World War II. And we could go way back in history and look at, at the way Ukraine has been occupied by different people. I then wanted to look at, at denial and negation as a, as direct, as a direct form of cover-up. Uh, and I looked at, and I look at Yugoslavia, the wars in Yugoslavia and art emanating from that. Then I turn it round and look at the way disinformation and negation has um, come up in uh, in the West and in the US, uh, especially in relation to US policy to South America in the 1960s and 70s. And then I look at uh, the, 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 the biggest form of denial in the last 100 years, which I think is Holocaust denial. And how do we deal with memory? How do we do, deal with the way we think about something that's too, that now is becoming too long ago for most people to actually be able to remember? In other words, we've only got documentary evidence, film and documents to, to help us. Um, and then finally, I look at, at denial and negation as a direct traumatic effect on the human body and on human uh, uh, mental health. Um, and, I, and that is where I look at Ch uh, a particular performance artist from Chile. So that's how I structured it. Yes. And that's how it kind of the subjects kind of unfolded in my mind. And sh shall I go on and talk about uh, Ukraine? Yeah, yes, uh, I think, please do. And, 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 and if there's artists that come into that, then great, yeah. no problem. Well, I, I, I basically was I opened it, opened the piece with 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 an artist called Nikita Kadan, who is, uh, as far as I know, still in um, Kiev. I, I, I read an interview with him recently in which he was, uh, he's in Kiev and he's in his, in a gallery which is an underground gallery which is being used as a uh, an air raid shelter, with a load of artworks. Um, and but he may not be there now. I don't know. That's the last I, I the interview I saw re most recently. But uh, he's been involved in art making uh, art as a responding to the situation with Russia. And I wrote about uh, a, a particular piece or a couple of pieces that he did in response to the uh, previous incursion into Ukraine by Russia, which happened in 2014, um, after the uh, Euro-Maidan uprising, uh, in which the previous government was overthrown, which was a sort of pro, pro, a Russian-leaning government, 
That was called the Revolution of Dignity. And that led to uh, the Russian incursion into Donbass and the invasion of the Crimea. And so <coughs> he, he, uh, I, I wrote about a piece that he did called the, called the Shell, uh, called um, Hold the Thought Where the Story Was Interrupted from 2014, um, which was a, a response to the way uh, the Russian military had uh, targeted museums and, you know, which are places where you, where you try to remember the past or you try and understand the past. And uh, I was interested in it because he's looking at uh, Soviet-era uh, war memorials, and which were built in a kind of modernistic, futuristic style, and just ordinary kitsch objects like stuffed animals. And he brought them in all together into these into this installation. He's done some other work that's quite similar to this, bringing together stuffed animals and and uh, uh, Beds where people can sleep and shelter. There's a piece called, there's a place called the, there's a piece he did called, called the shelter, in fact, from the same year, which uses tires and stuffed animals and bunks. Um, so he's bringing all these ideas of museums, uh, air raid shelters, <clears throat> stuffed animals, kitsch, and Soviet futurism together into. A one into these artworks which are incredibly claustrophobic and they seem to sort of be squashing the viewer down. <coughs> you mean like having a low ceiling, say? Yeah, that it, kind it, of thing. That's what a picture of one and it did look like a, not a, a kind of, I understand what you mean, but mostly I got that impression from the fact that it, the, he sort of designed the walls, different shapes and the, and the ceiling looked lower in parts. And Yes, exactly. Yeah. Without it, you would have to move your body about a bit because I was yeah. thinking of the as being grand and huge, the yeah. Soviet ones. Yes, they were designed to make you feel like the, the, the future was going to be limitless and it was going to be proletarian. And of course, nothing could be further from the truth. He, so I, I, I wanted to sort of create an idea of the way he understands the world in terms of history and the way history is sort of turned against him, his people in Ukraine. And I also wanted to look at, uh, at some of his drawings and uh, in charcoal, which, which uh, uh, directly look at the way the past has been altered. And I wrote a little bit about the Chronicle, which is a series of drawings from 2016, which are drawings of doctored photos, photos that were taken of um, uh, uh, pogroms in Lviv in 1941, which would have been under the Nazi occupation, and the, Vol the Volhynia massacre of 1943, which would have been under the, um, uh, which I think was actually uh, um, committed by Soviet uh, NKVD agents. <coughs> but but basically, he was looking at these photos, and they've been and. Uh, and copying them, and uh, and they and they are photos that were doctored. He also did a series called the Spectators of 2016, which are drawings of photographs that Rodchenko and his wife Varvara Stepanova uh, used in a book in 1934 called Ten Years of Uzbekistan. And during 
uh, the next few years. These were these were photographs of Soviet um, uh, officials, and in the years this was under Stalin. In the years following that, the publication of this book, several of these officials were denounced by the Communist Party, and so um, Rodchenko uh, painted over them in ink, and what what. Uh, what Nikita Kadam did with, in this piece of work was he copied the photos as drawings, including the photos that had been inked over. And he thought of the, he thinks of the inked over images as kind of spe spectral witnesses to, to historic change. He thinks that the inked over censored photos are the particularly important ones. Well, yeah, I mean, they, they obviously are visually interesting. Any redaction is a kind of yeah. thing because your imagination goes into trying to work out what, what was there before yeah. a bit or just the whole power of, of doing it. I mean, that, 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 so that's the, him addressing the manipulation of memory. Yes, exactly. That's what he said. What interests me, and this is, this is my slight scepticism, this is what I'm really interested in. This is a personal project, in other words. The artist is doing it. It must take a long time, laborious or enjoyable, depending on what kind of thing you like doing, to copy photographs. It's, you know, there is a kind of why. And, and I'm really interested in the kind of explaining or trying to get to grips with the difference between seeing the original and seeing his painting or drawing of that original now obviously the difference i can clearly see and this may answer my own question is the is the action that he's taken which is one of great contemplation yeah over yeah. image or images lots of images do you know what i mean is that so so i can see how as an artist doing that is a really involving project i'm just i'm just wondering as with Caprow, there's these massive happenings and involving everybody in them. And that yeah. the key thing to bring people in and change their lives. And the artist is just a kind of trigger, in a way, for, a, for mm. experiences by other people. How do you think, and this is a rotten question really, how do you think mm. work would affect the viewer? Well, I think the, the first of all, I, I, I'm just trying to remember, but I think Kadan has actually said uh, in in an interview, in other interviews that I've read about, that the whole way he makes art is quite new or relatively new in Ukraine. They haven't really had much installation art. Uh, well, not before the not before 2014, shall we say? This kind of art is 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 quite different from what they traditionally have experienced. And I think what, what viewers <clears throat> to exhibitions in which this kind of very meticulous work, copying photographs will uh, experience is, is the feeling of being overwhelmed by um, the, the amount of work that the artist has put in and the meticulousness and the intimacy of it. The weight of the process. And I think this also applies to a couple of other artists I've written about, um, including the Serbian artist Vladimir Miladinovic, who, um, who 
who, who basically, his whole uh, way of working is to copy documents and copy newspapers mm. uh, as drawings and paintings in, with, with homemade ink. Oh my God. <laughs> and I, I've seen pictures of his, of his uh, exhibition um, installations and it literally, it, you, you, it looks as if you walk into a gallery and you see something like 400 squ uh, rectangles, all the same size or not. In each rectangle, there's a page from a, a, a longer series of documents. And I was writing this uh, because, uh, well, I, I was writing in particular about one piece he, he did called Free Objects from 2015, which is <clears throat> uh, copies of documents relating to the bodies of 744 Kosovo Albanians that were discovered in 2002 uh, at Batanica um, police, uh, uh, special police barracks near Belgrade. And these were people who had been killed in Kosovo during the Kosovo conflict or Kosovo war in 1999, <clears throat> buried and then dug up again and taken to Serbia so that there would be no evidence of a war crime in Kosovo. And so they were buried in Serbia. Uh, and along with the bodies, the bodies were burned, but along with the burned bodies were what's called free objects, which is the title of the piece. <clears throat> and the, the free objects are things that the bodies, that the people were carrying with them like wristwatches, necklaces, um, bits of jewelry. Um, and there were some bo loose body parts and um, what were referred to in the documents as projectiles, which are bullets. <coughs> so, <clears throat> so these three objects were listed by the forensic scientists who, who, who discovered and investigated the bodies. And so uh, Miladinovic copied the documents, like really uh, word, very, very exhaustively and exactly. And I think, so going back to your original question, what's the impact of seeing this? My feeling, if I was there, and um, my feeling on discovering this artist, who I didn't know anything about before I researched this, is uh, he's a Serbian artist and he's going into an immense amount of trouble to make people face up to the fact in Serbia, because this exhibition happened in Belgrade, uh, it's to make people understand the absolute detail of everything that happened during, as a result of this war crime. It wasn't just about, it, was, it wasn't just about the fact that these people died in Kosovo, it's due to the fact that, that the Serbian authorities went to so much trouble to hide the event and to move the bodies and to keep it secret. Yeah. And the fact that the archive of it became available for him to do that, yeah. do that work is, is, is obviously <clears throat> another way in which it would be revealed to people that it, that it did happen. But he, he presumably is adding quite an intensity to that it's, it's like an archive of an archive or something, you know, and then 
Yeah. Really the best thing for that to, to happen to that is for it to be seen by as many people as possible, really, isn't it? And it, for it to be shown. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes, yes. I don't know if it has to be in one place or it can. Anyway, I, 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 my question was not meant to be um, proving I disagree. I genuinely need want to understand, really, because I, I, there's a thing yeah. about what I call process art, which is not really what this is, but that kind of thing where it, it takes a huge amount of determination and, and belief, self-belief in the artist to go through that great long process. Yeah, yeah. And when they start, I can't imagine quite how they believe it will, well, they don't know what, whether it will work. They don't know what, a, they have to believe that it is worth spending all that time doing that and that it will be seen and that it will have an effect. I just think yes, it's yes. amazing, really. But I, there isn't really, in many ways, well, there are, there are, I mean, with the Holocaust, which you do get onto later, I know there's a massive amount of people making sure that it's not forgotten, in my opinion. The world is, we're, we're often told about the Holocaust now. Yeah. It shouldn't be forgotten, of course, but it's not lacking in information or opportunity to be told. Whereas, obviously, this one, this particular Holocaust, as you could call it, might well have been forgotten so it's interesting to me that he's, I know he's Serbian, so it's just, it's just a really intriguing project, an artist to take on, really. I, I, and it's not something, it's not particularly enjoyable, is it? I mean, it's a, it's a life. No. Not a time, no, I mean, not enjoyable. No, because it's still, because the, the, the forces that were at war, that were uh, uh, that at work, uh, during the wars in Kosovo, Bosnia, and so on, are still out there. <laughs> you know, I mean, another piece that he did that uh, Miladinovic did is called The Notebook, and he did the same thing with uh, the diary of Ratko Mladic, who is the Serb, Bosnian Serb general, yes. who was responsible yes. for the siege of Sarajevo and the massacre, uh, the genocidal massacre at Srebrenica. And he was on the run for years, protected by um, uh, people in Serbia, and then recaptured, I think in 20, 2016, in- yeah, Long time without. Yeah, uh, he was recaptured. And uh, he, uh, during the, the, the search for him, they discovered in one of the safe houses where he'd been hiding, a diary hidden behind a, a false wall. And this was used as, as part of the evidence to convict him <clears throat> and put him away. And uh, so, uh, but, uh, but of course, when he was, I was actually in Croatia when he was caught and the newspaper had headlines in Croatia were very, you know, you know we've, they've caught this guy and he should be put away but uh, very anti-Mladic. But of course in Serbia, a lot of people, a lot of newspapers still described him as a hero. And the, the, in Bosnia now, the, the, there, there are very upsetting kind of indications that the Serb uh, government, there is a sort of, they have a, they have a kind, of, there is a Serb enclave and they have a say in the government of, Bo of Bosnia, which is of course a very multi-ethnic place. And there are very distinct signs that that the Serb uh, government in in uh, in Banja Luka want to want to 
uh, move away from sharing government and want to move back towards being hostile and having their own army. And that it, 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 with the war happening in Ukraine, that there, there's a lot of worry in a lot of people's minds that, that something bad could start happening in Bosnia again. So those forces are still out there, you know, those, that, that, those, those forces of, of ethno-nationalism that made that war especially brutal and murderous still, are still going, yes. You know, and therefore what artists can do, because they're not politicians and they're not... Yes. You know, if, if you... If you it, it, it's interesting because I, I'm quite sure there are some artists, and I've known some, um, who... who could easily in a parallel parallel life have been politicians, or they could have been many other things, and they, you know, because of life, they chose originally to be an artist and they stuck with it. I know, I know one artist who was at Goldsmiths with me called Caroline Russell. She she now works as a, as a politician. She and she went from artist to architecture to being uh, uh, on the London Assembly. I mean, it, 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 and what interests me is that the people. There's no reason why artists shouldn't do that, but equally, there's no reason why they shouldn't do the, bring into their work the things that they are all equally capable of understand about life, which, you know, like politics and about... And it's absolutely true that this idea of history coming back, you know, the Soviets in, in, in Ukraine now, is the, the Russians in Ukraine, I should say, I mean, it's, it is... It happens. It's a reality, and we and we do have to try and draw attention to these things. I mean, I personally, I I, I find the, the idea. This isn't a lecture by me, but I'm I'm just I'm just concerned about. I'm always a bit nervous of my lack of understanding enough of politics mm. to be able to really directly point at it or use it in my own artwork. But I am I do make work with with, for instance, ecological issues in mind which is a more but it's, it's a much it's, a, it's quite a removed state compared to this work we've just described but that but everyone can do it at a different level but it still has a kind of there is an, a me you know my interests outside of art for art's sake are in the work and i think that's an important thing that art can do so and however directly or indirectly isn't it really of course yes yes yeah you you mentioned that denial does not, of course, solely the speciality of the former communist countries. No, <laughs> those of you like Yugoslavia. You mentioned the U.S. Yeah. Well, part of the reason I did this was because I, uh, as you, you may know, I'm 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 married to an Argentinian woman, and we have long discussions about what's going on in each other's country, and. When Ukraine started happening, I, I was told <laughs> in very strong terms that uh, people in, uh, on the, uh, generally sort of on the left politically in Argentina are not exactly pro-Russia, but they're anti-NATO and they're anti-America, they're anti-USA. Uh, so they look up, so several people in the Argentinian media, or in the press, in the left-wing press, were of the opinion that um, anything that happened in Ukraine that stopped NATO g 
getting involved was a good thing. That was early. That was at the first, the first week of the war. Things have probably changed a bit now. But the reason for all this is because of what happened in several big South American countries in the 1970s, which was Operation Condor, which was a, a CIA-backed um, campaign to take over countries like Chile and Argentina and bring in right-wing dictatorships and make all the opposition disappear by jailing them and killing them, torturing them, making, the, making them disappear. And so I wrote a bit about Alfredo Jar, who is a Chilean artist, and his piece, or a couple of his pieces, <clears throat> um, Searching for K, which is from 1984, which is, K is Kissinger, Henry Kissinger, and... Um, Pardon? Still alive. Still is, yes. It's extraordinary. And he's never been, he's never been um, prosecuted for all the things he did. He got, uh, the, the reason uh, I'm saying that is because he was, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1973 for negotiating the terms of the peace deal with the, the North Vietnamese at, at the end of the Vietnam War. Where, where, and he had... Uh, had a big influence on expanding the war into Cambodia and Laos, and uh, which were which brought about the Khmer Rouge, which killed two million extra people, um, all the bombing, all, all the expansion of the war. So Kissinger is looked upon by a lot of people as a potential war war criminal, and what. What Alfredo Jarre did was produce this series of photographs of Kissinger in, in compromising uh, places, in comp talking to uh, very uh, dodgy people, political people, uh, polit politicians and political leaders, and just put, putting a red circle around, that, around Kissinger's head just to emphasize the point that he actually was there talking to these people. Okay, so there's um, evidence in a way being presented. Evidence, yes. Yes, absolutely. And he combined this in uh, some, uh, some uh, on some occasions, on one occasion, he combined this in 2012 in Berlin with um, an attempt to arrest Kissinger because the exhibition at Berlin was, was a collaboration with the European Centre for Constitutional, Constitutional and Human Rights. And they printed uh, adverts in the newspapers in Berlin in different languages, um, uh, campaigning to arrest Kissinger. And the languages were those languages that, that were that are used in places that had been impacted by things that Kissinger had done all over the world. Um, and I also wrote about a, a little bit about a piece called uh, um, "Nothing of." Great Consequence from 2008, which is, which is a transcription of uh, a telephone conversation between Kissinger and Richard Nixon, the president, on the occasion of, or shortly after the 1973 coup in Chile, which deposed, uh, well, <clears throat> which caused the, the death of the socialist president Allende and brought in the, Pino, the Pinochet dictatorship which murdered thousands of people, made thousands of people disappear. And uh, 
uh, Kissinger is saying that, uh, well, Nixon, Nixon asked Kissinger, <clears throat> is there anything uh, of any consequence going on? And <laughs> Kissinger says nothing of great consequence. Then he says, <laughs> yes, sorry. It's getting confused. Can you hear me all right? I can't hear you. No, sorry. I can't hear you. Oh, no. I haven't done anything, but the sound. No, no, I can hear you, but you're, you're, you're slightly breaking up. You just slightly broke up. I can hear some background noise. I'll say that again. He, he basically, he goes on and says something about um, the Chilean thing is getting consolidated, which means he's yes. hands off instigated this thing. Yes. Not a very consequential thing, is it? He's saying it is an extraordinary no. transcript. Did, did Alfredo Jar just present that literally? Yes. Because I saw something on the internet. It was just like two pages of that transcript, which is where I got. Yes. That. Yes. Yeah. It, this this stuff has all been um, uh, declassified, and uh, I was going to also mention, but I didn't have the space to include this, but there, there is another Chilean artist <coughs> called Voluspa Yampa, who uh, I saw this piece in, in Santiago in 2018. It's called um, In Our Little Region Over Here. And you walk into this gallery and there's just um, mountains of books and all these books are books of declassified archive material from the US concerning not just Chile, but Argentina, Brazil, Paraguay, Uruguay. And you can, you can, it, it's just stuff you can read about everything the CIA did in Operation Condor. Uh, and there are immense ro rolls of paper that are suspended from the ceiling, which are newspaper uh, front cover, front covers, which are copied. So <clears throat> there's, there's all this actuality and all the declassified information that you can, it's overwhelming, you know, it's the, the amount of material that you can find. I mean, it's on the net, it's on the internet as well, but yeah. somehow walking yeah. into a room and seeing it and it like a library, a sort of mad library, uh, it makes you realize that, that all this stuff has been completely covered up for years and now, now you get yeah now you can see it and you can see the reality of it. It is interesting. It is interesting the, the sort of revealing of archival hidden archives. I think a lot yeah. of artists are realizing that that there is more out there that wouldn't have been. Um, it, it's I, I think it's very important this this history aspect in that um, I always think it's slightly annoying when you see younger artists making work and you think, well, I wonder if they know about that artist that did something very like that before. And you, you want to know if they know the history of the art that they are using the same form as, or I, I, and I'm not saying that they shouldn't be doing what they're doing, but the context, because the context is different and the time is different, but I always want to know. So history is so important, both within being an artist just in your knowledge of previous art, but also knowing about what's gone on in life before as well, in order that you don't allow things to repeat that are terrible. Uh, for instance, which, I mean, obviously it also allows for things good to happen because you know about them as well. What, 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 um, yes. you, by the way, Alfredo is a patron of Art Monthly, folks. I, I saw that. 
Yes, you put that, you inserted that. <laughs> I didn't know that, but it's, it's good to hear. <laughs> Ever proud, I think. I think he's been, a, he's known Art Monthly for a long time. Yes. I think he knew, uh, probably knew Jack Wendler, our publisher, who is no longer the publisher, but uh, was for many, many years and started the magazine. Hmm. Jack and Mel Wendler, folks. Um, what comes after that is, I think you, you do get to the denial of the Holocaust. And you mentioned a book by... I'm not sure if I say her second name correctly, but Deborah Lipstadt. Yes, it's called, I've got it here, it's called Denying the Holocaust, The Growing Assault on Truth and Memory. And it came out in 1993. And uh, so I, I, I'm mentioning that because I think that's like the first time I came across the whole concept of, of it being a serious phenomenon, you know, that people would actually try and deny that the Holocaust ever happened. And De uh, Lipstadt of, it was fa became famous as, as someone who was uh, sued by David Irving, the British historian who is or was a, a Holocaust denier, and he lost um, that case, thank goodness. And, and, um, uh, but I looked at this because, uh, well, well I've, I, I, I linked this to um, an exhibition at, in Tartu in Estonia uh, called My Poland on recalling and forgetting because it seems to me that since Denying the Holocaust, the book by Libstadt came out, this whole question of Holocaust denial has just become bigger and bigger. <coughs> it, it's, it, it's, 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 it's almost unbelievable for someone of my age because I grew up with parents and everybody else's parents around me who had direct memories of the Second World War. And I mean, I can remember meeting the mother of a friend of mine uh, and he, he had Polish parents. I knew he was Polish. This was in the middle 1960s. And I remember me on a very sunny morning, his mum was digging the garden uh, and I must have been about 10 years old and I went over to say hello to her. I'd never met her before. And I noticed um, she had numbers tattooed on the inside of her arm. And I said, I remember, and I knew what they were because mum, my mum had told me <laughs> that if you were a concentration camp prisoner, you, you were tattooed with your prison number. And I said to her, did you get those numbers in Germany? And she said, no, darling, I got them in Poland. And um, still. Yeah, very moving. <laughs> very moving. Yeah, I've never been that close, but I'm not sure. The thing is, you mentioned an artist who got somebody to renew their numbers, their tattoos. Yeah, but, well, I think he's been in Art Monthly before. This is Arthur Zimijewski. And he did the piece that you mentioned at the beginning of the, this broadcast uh, called the, the Game of Tag, which is the video of <clears throat> naked actors uh, in a, a gas chamber uh, playing a, a chasing game in the gas chamber of Stutthof concentration camp, which is near Gdansk. And laughing. <laughs> and laughing and having a nice time, yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. kind of... that. I can I can kind of understand 
that that is meant to make people shocked in such a way as to to remind them that actually this is a gas chamber, this is where people died. They didn't play games. They would have been traumatized and horrified and they would have been frightened. <coughs> but this other piece that you've just mentioned, 80064, it was uh, a, a later piece in which he um, asks a former concentration camp prisoner called Joseph Tarbana, to have his concentration camp number re-tattooed to make it brighter, to make it look more clear. And he has to be persuaded to do this. And eventually he does this. And I thought, because of that memory that I've just told you about, about my own childhood, I just thought, I couldn't, that's horrible. You can't make someone do that. In fact, he paid, he paid that guy to, to have the tattoo redone. I believe. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm, I feel very dubious about that artwork. So, well, I'm glad that there is some clarity in a way, or, you know, caution about it's not always okay to just dive into history and, and assume oh. you're going to get it right. I think it's quite possible to, uh, to aggravate things. I mean, I think you even say yeah. it might even create a, a denialist conclusion by the viewer. Yeah, because you're playing around with it. You're playing around with somebody. You're, you're, in fact, this is an individual who's been <clears throat> in a concentration camp. He's an eyewitness to history, and you're messing around with the fact that he's an eyewitness, and you're messing around with his body. And that really, that, that kind of disturbs me. I, I think it's an interesting... <laughs> when, when people... So I'm getting a sound problem. When people are young, mm. I, and I remember thinking this myself, is that you, you kind of want life to move on, don't you? And you kind of, you get tired of old people going on about the past and what they, what they experienced, whatever it is, because you're just young and you want, you know, you, you don't know a lot and, and life is about the future in a way and your future. So I can kind of understand that as a, as a, as a, a base for an attitude it's obviously very naive and it's not one i would advocate at all but it's sort of i don't even know how old the artist was but you it, 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 people need to understand though that it that some areas of of life are just not to be played with are they i mean not in that not not public history as it were or very very personal history like that as well it's, it's a it's a very interesting thing i can't put myself into the position of someone who's, who's living, I mean, I don't know what it's like to be an artist in Poland right now. I don't know, I've never lived in Poland, I don't know what, but although I did have a better picture of, of that Holocaust history in relation to the situation nowadays in Poland with the other artwork I wrote about, which was by Jael Bartana, which is this uh, video piece, uh, Cosmeri, which means nightmare, from 20, 2008, uh, which is a, a really uh, interesting film in which a, a, a journalist, a real-life journalist called uh, Slavomir Sierakovsky makes a very emotional speech um, appealing, 
but to an audience of Boy Scouts. And he's standing in an auditorium, which is a, a public auditorium, which is very, it's overgrown with trees and plants and it's been out of use for years. Okay. And, and he's appealing to this audience uh, or he's making a speech to this audience, appealing to the three million Polish Jews who died during World War II to return to Poland, to come back, to reinvigorate the country, to, to bring uh, something that's lost back to the country, to add something to the country that's needed. Um, and I, I, I found it incredibly moving, I suppose, as a performance, but also the circumstances in which it's filmed, because it's, it refers <clears throat> to, in, in a very, not, not in a harsh way, but in a kind of subtle way, to totalitarian films like the ones made by Leni Riefenstahl for the Nazis in the 1930s, of political speeches in big sports stadiums or big, big public stadiums, you know, which are very dramatic and Overdramatic. This is this is a this was, but it may, puts into context the, the the history, the complicated history of a country like Poland, right now, and which is made even more complicated right now by what's going on next in the next door country, Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, at the moment they are taking on more refugees from Ukraine than any other country. Of course, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Amazing to see. I mean, in a, in a good way. Yeah. Yes, yes. I just have to hope that the next stage is is that they can go back and not not that they yeah. get followed by the wrong people. Very complicated. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yes, Listen, it is. We're, getting, we're getting fairly close to the end, um, but you mentioned also a, Ch a Chilean Swiss artist, Marissa Cornejo. And yeah, so I, yes. I, I was very interested in this because I wanted to just write a bit about how, how negation and denial uh, can, be, can affect the mind and the body. And this woman, Marisa Cornejo, <clears throat> her father uh, was an art teacher called Eugenio, and he was arrested um, in the, the Pinochet coup, and he was uh, interned or kept prisoner for a short while, for a while, in the National Stadium in Santiago, which is now known as the Victor Jara Stadium, which is, Victor Jara was a very famous folk musician and political activist who was murdered in that stadium uh, by the Pinochet regime. Well, Eugenio uh, luckily was released, and, but he was, he was expelled from Chile. So uh, Marisa, her, his daughter, grew up in Bulgaria and later on Mexico. Eugenio died uh, in Mexico of various ailments, which included, you know, post, um, uh, post-traumatic stress and I think alcoholism. And, but he'd left behind um, lino uh, etchings, lino cuts that he'd done in Plovdiv in, in, in Bulgaria. And 
Mar Marisa, who is a contemporary dancer as well as a performance artist, uh, used some of the liner cuts that her father made to do these performances in Santiago, uh, including some of them in, in, in the Victor Jara Stadium itself, which is now partially a museum. And you can go, I've not been there, but you, you could, I, I believe what you can do is you can go, the, you can go and see the, the, the door, there's a particular doorway, I think it's number eight, where prisoners were let in and out. And um, that's what, and there's a staircase behind this doorway, and I think she did the performance in that staircase. But she, what the performance involved her, I, I've only seen the photographs, but rolling about, or, or print, getting printed from these works by her father onto her yeah. body. Uh, yeah, onto her body, but uh, 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 she uses different parts of her body depending on the subject of the liner cut. And I think she did, she also uh, uses shamanistic rituals that she learned in Mexico. Right. Um, so uh, uh, it, it's a, a kind of mixture of, of, of uh, performance art and shamanism and printing. And I thought that's a great combination. Um, but, but also she's, she seems to be dealing with in her for herself but also revealing if you follow if you understand what it's all what all these what's going on and where all these things come from her father's experience and then her experience with her father yes yes his experience of trying to deal with it yes and it's affects all that's effect on her and then yes a kind of full circle i i i i see it as in a way you know i i, I did i do i agree i think it's something that it, it it's an attempt to reconcile and to come to terms with your own personal memories and those of your parent and I, you know psychiatrists some psychiatrists think you you can only really um, you only have two generations of memory you what you what you've learned from your father your father and mother your parents and what they've told and what you get from your grandparents when you think about it you can't really think you, you don't really know much about your great grandparents but if 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 what that also means is you've got inside you you've got up to two generations of inherited trauma so um, i think this particular work which is called la huesh La Huesha, or La Huela, uh, the, which means the footprint. I think it's a really good way of explaining how trauma is not just something you experience, but something that you inherit from those who went before you. And also, say if you have children, you will pass on. You will pass up. You'll pass something on. Yes. Yes. So have. They are going to absorb as well, and then they'll go. It, it does go on into the future, but I, it's a difficult one to present. And it does sound like she, she she's done a good job of it. From I mean, going back into the stadium to do the performances is a, a a hell of an idea, really, isn't it? Well, she wrote that she was quite scared by the the whole idea of doing doing that, and I quite understand why. But I can understand also why she was motivated to 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 do exactly that you know to go back to the place where where he was in where, where he was in prison and he was frightened and he didn't know what was going to happen to him and and she did that after is that right 
Yes, after he died, yes. yes. I'm not surprised by that. I would have thought it would be a difficult thing to do when he was alive. But uh, it's very, very interesting. Listen, I think we've had a, a good chat. I hope the listeners have yeah. are enthused to read your feature, which is the main aim of the programme originally. But it, obviously, I think that we sort of create another another thing in a way. And uh, it's always interesting to hear what people say as well as read. It's, 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 I think you present more ideas quite often as well as some remaining in the, ob in the object of your text, which they will get when they read. So, listeners, if you want yes. to Bob's piece, it is in the April 22 issue 455 of our monthly. And we do hope you subscribe to our monthly, which you can do... It's actually the best and cheapest way of doing it. You can get the printed object sent to you for 10 times a year for £39 plus post and package. You can also get just digital, and that's £8.99, which is great because you also get a back catalogue to search through. So you could read other things by Bob Dickinson, for instance, that are in that archive and just by searching for his name. Or you can just add £10 to your print subscription and then you get both. Bob Dickinson, thank you so much for coming on the programme. And I'm sorry you've got a slight cold. I hope you get better very soon from that. I'm, I'm sure I'll be fine. I hope, you, I hope your cough subsides as well, Matt. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure it will. I've had a bit of COVID, so uh, I'm not doing badly, really, considering very little effect. Good, good. This has been the Our Monthly Talk Show on Resonance FM 104.4, which is a great station and was recently featured on the BBC, which I was very pleased about. Wow. Goodbye, all. Good. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Bye, Bob. Thanks for having me.